0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Radio Estros, Episode 38, Myths and Legends of the East. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston.
2: And I'm Yoke Boy in England. And thanks so much for tuning in today. We have lined up an episode on the Legends of the East, which is the third and final part of our Legends series. If you haven't checked out the Northern and Southern Legends episodes yet, today's episode will work fine as a standalone.
1: And today we'll be looking at legends from across the Narrow Sea, although more often than not, they made their way across to Westerosi shores at some point in history. This gives us a great opportunity to tie the discussion on Eastern legends to the history of Essos, so there'll be plenty of focus on the three pivotal migrations to Westeros of Andals, Rhoynar, and Valyrians.
2: Yes, so an undertone of socio-politics, history and migration to underpin the episode today beneath the discussion on legends such as Garen the Great and Nymeria of the Rhoynar.
1: And we'll also have Hugo of the Hill of the Andals, a prominent figure for followers of the Seven who some say aided him in person. Then we'll divert to a very detailed look at the legend of Azor Ahai and Lightbringer and how pervasive this tale has been in Essos. Also, expect a discussion on the morality of sacrifice following a line-by-line analysis of the tale.
2: Yes, so some Azor Ahai there. We know you love that kind of discussion. But we'll also consider the Carthene tale of the birth of dragons and noting mention of a cracked moon in each tale... Ponder how the two could relate. Then we'll visit the damned and doomed in the grim mines of Valyria, where a call for mercy is first answered by a legendary no one.
1: And finally we'll consider the oppressive Valyrians, the reasons why they behaved as they did, and consider a legendary figure of theirs in Dany's Targaryen who dreamed of a coming doom. This dream would save the Targaryens, who would soon enough build upon their survival by conquering Westeros, and all from the dreams of Danis.
2: So, with the stories of the Roina, the Andals, the faceless men stroke Braavosi, and the Valyrians, all overlapping, this will give our look at Eastern legends added depth and value, we hope. And, speaking of legends...
1: We have some legendary supporters and we want to shout out all of you who have joined our Patreon campaign to support the podcast, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, Harry Krishna, John Brigarian, and Peter, and our Pale as glass patrons, Rory, Laura, Sister Winter and Kelly.
2: Yes, thank you guys and to all our patrons, and if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast. Find our campaign at Patreon, where you can donate any amount on a per-episode basis and get access to a host of rewards such as early access, these shout-outs, and our Patreon episode on Varamir.
1: Yeah, so come on by patreon.com radioesteros or click through the link on our website to check out our Patreon campaign. And now... Let's get going with Myths and Legends of the East.
2: The Ruinar had grown rich off the bounty of their river. Mother Ruin they named her. Fishers, traders, teachers, scholars, workers in wood and stone and metal... They raised their elegant towns and cities from the headwaters of the Rhoyne down to her mouth, each lovelier than the last.
1: At the end of our Southern Legends episode, we featured a section on Nymeria and assessed her as a legend from the Dornish perspective. Here we can offer some continuity as we explore the Rhoynar legends and consider Nymeria's exodus from the Essosi perspective.
2: Here we now have the opportunity to look at the issues behind the 10,000 ships legend, what happened before Nymeria headed for Dawn, and to consider another Rhoynish legend in Garin the Great. Both figures are part of the overarching story of the last great migration into Westeros, and so there will be a neat overlapping in this telling. But to understand Garin and Nymeria, we must first understand the Roinar.
1: The river Roin is known to be the mightiest in the world, and in the time after the decline of the Giscari Empire, the Roinar prospered along its banks. Elegant cities arose and the Rhoynar developed as an artful, musical, skilled people who were as adept with their crafts and constructions as they were with their own brand of water magic.
2: Among these cities were Nisar and Croyan, ruled in time by Princess Nymeria and Prince Garin, respectively. Each Rhoynish city had its own princess or prince, with these rather progressive societies valuing equality between the sexes. By all accounts, this was a beautiful civilization, flourishing and thriving, described with romanticism and idealisation as places like ancient Florence are by our own historians. For many centuries, the Rhoynar lived this way, in peace.
1: However, peace never lasts forever, especially in a place like Essos. The specter of war loomed over this society, and this was a winged specter, breathing flame and taking slaves, because given the victory over the Giscari, it was perhaps inevitable that the dragon lords of Valyria would one day fix their gaze on the next thriving civilization.
2: The Rhoynar are not described as an aggressive people, yet years of attempted Andal conquering had hardened them to resisting invasion, and so we can assert that they were formidable defenders. With a magical relationship with the Mother Rhoyne, their mentioned metalworking, their women warrior tradition, and their turtle shell shields, here was a people seeking advantage in any way they could – magic, skills, culture, or habitat. It should be no surprise then that as defenders, many savage peoples knew better than to mistreat the Rhoynar.
1: However, this was a lesson apparently lost on the Valyrians who were emboldened by their dragon-riding culture. The Rhoynar showed no ambition to expand their own empire, yet the myriad of Valyrian outposts did. Initially, the Rhoynar welcomed the Valyrians as neighbors, offering to share the river's bounty, which is interesting in light of the greater story involving the acceptance of their own culture by the Dornish. Whereas that tale ends well with a mutually beneficial integration, the embracing of the Valyrian expansion proved to be naive. As Maester Yandel puts it, Amity gave way to enmity.
2: And it was in this tension caused by expansionism, as it has often been in our own history, that provided the tiniest of sparks for the Great War to come. According to legend, a Valyrian fisherman netted and butchered a sacred giant turtle. The first Turtle War began. And that name might at first seem like George's commentary on the sometimes rather trivial nature of initial sparks that have caused mass wars, yet for the Rhoynar the Turtles were sacred, perhaps indicating religious intolerance from the Valerians. Regardless, the fighting highlighted that assimilation between these two peoples was simply not possible. Many wars followed, with the fiercely proud Roinish princes attempting to wage war in isolation of the other cities
1: and it took a devastating atrocity to finally unite the reinar three dragon lords joined Philantis to destroy the illustrious city of Sarvoi, which witnessed savage slaughterings and children carried off into slavery before the area was sown with salt to ruin it forever a despicable trick also used in slaver's bay the fruits of which or lack thereof we see in the modern story
2: yes we do and the valerians might have ensured Sarhoi never rose again, but the thoroughness of this assault awoke the Roynar as a collective force. The resistance begins with the Prince of Croyan calling for unity. We shall all be slaves unless we join together to end this threat, declared the greatest of them, Garen of Croyan. This warrior-prince called upon his fellows to join with him in a great alliance to wash away every Valyrian city on the river.
1: With the Valyrian expansionism becoming increasingly aggressive, Prince Garen must have felt that full-scale war with the Dragonlords was an inevitability. In fairness, it seems like there was no path for diplomacy, and the Reiner cities fighting independently risked enslavement against overwhelming forces.
2: In spite of great support from other leaders, there was but one who spoke against him, Princess Nymeria, who claimed, This is a war we cannot hope to win. Such was the unpopularity of her opinion that warriors of her own city joined the chorus of princes who shouted her down. Even in hindsight, it's difficult to evaluate the dispute without knowing what Nymeria's alternate policy was at that time. But it is possible that in its complexity and the factor of the relentless and ferocious foe, that the Roinar were then in a catch-22 situation where they were destined for devastation either way.
1: However, fighting unwinnable wars is a romantic notion, which is a reason why the legend of Garin has endured so much that, in the Mercy chapter, and tiny spoiler alert, Garen the Great is portrayed in theater to this day.
2: And so, Garin took the nuclear option in a maneuver that could be described as both retaliatory and preemptive amassing the largest army ever seen in Essos, apparently a quarter of a million strong. Every man from the length of the Rhoyne and its many tributaries answered the call to arms, and water wizards were primed to nullify the threat of dragons. At this stage, Garin might seem like Caraticus of British history, a first century leader who united the British tribes to fend off the Romans.
1: And in story we might think of Mance Raider uniting the free folk, or Lorne of the Rock joining with Myrn of the Reach to oppose Aegon Targaryen. The story doesn't go well for any of these men, nor does it for Garen. He began by smashing every Valyrian settlement in his march down the river, and then took Celorus and Velisar, with their magicians creating great waterspouts, archers killing two dragons, and in spite of heavy burning losses, Garin took
2: it was then that he was named Garin the Great by his men, but glory was short-lived. In a bold move, he marched on Volantis, who refused to engage his host. Instead, they appealed to the freehold of Valeria. The Valerians replied, not with three dragons, but reportedly with three hundred.
1: And it's said that tens of thousands burned or were drowned seeking salvation in the Mother Ruin, which itself was said to have boiled under the dragon flame. No mercy was shown, and Garin was captured, able to witness his host ravaged beyond comprehension. And so the cost of Garin's risk was exposed. By collecting every available mail for his army, in defeat, he had allowed for the demise of his people— we wonder if the Dothraki will be a party to the same brazenness if they're ever employed on the battlefield altogether as alluded to in the stallion that mounts the world prophecy.
2: Yeah, we'll have to wait and see for that. And after Garin's host was destroyed came the Sackings, with Sarmel being ruthlessly scourged. Next was Prince Garin's own city of Croyan and the Valerians trapped him inside a golden cage to watch. The cage was positioned to see the remaining women and children enslaved, remembering Garin's initial motive for waging war was to avoid this very enslavement. Whether that became a self-fulfilling prophecy, or if it was inevitable anyway, is an interesting question, Yet you know, what's certain is that Garin's foolhardiness in becoming the aggressor at least hastened Valyria's conquering and motivated its totality. It's with this hindsight we can wonder where Nymeria's caution would have led us.
1: At the least there might have been a way to resist Valyria's grasp for longer and avoid such a quick and thorough destruction of their culture. As it happened, Garen allegedly had the last laugh, calling down a curse from his cage, which caused a great flood, leading to grayscale infections. The truth of this claim will leave for you to decide, but in the current story we do see the Croyan area, as Tyrion makes his way through the Sorrows and witnesses Garen's curse for himself.
2: And talking of the main books... The Garin tale links to another Garin, one of Ariane's companions. He is a so called orphan of the Greensblood, meaning a member of the Roynar who lives in Dawn but refuses to assimilate, resolving instead to live by the old ways of river life. These folk surely revere everything that Garin the Great aspired to, and so it should be no surprise then that the warrior-prince is this young man's namesake.
1: Overall, Garen the Great embodied the defiance and pride that defined the Roinar, yet the foolhardiness as a general was paid for by the blood of his people. As we mentioned, there is a greyness in the political background, revolving around that Catch-22 that the Roinar found themselves in, and along those lines it's interesting to consider how the Valyrian monopoly on dragons brought an unfairness and inevitability around the destruction of neighboring populations. No river magic could stand against the mobility and hostility of Dragonflame coming from the Freehold's winged armada, and that was Garen's critical error. Higher on the Rhine, in Nisar, Princess Nymeria soon received news of Garin's shattering defeat and the enslavement of the people of Croyane and Sarmel. The same fate awaited her own city, she saw. Princess
2: Nymeria can't have had much time to think when Garin's forces were obliterated and Croyan devastated. As before, her people were in a double bind, though the time for caution and diplomacy that she'd spoken for was well and truly past. With the same motives as Garin to protect her people from enslavement, Nymeria aimed to flee, The Flight to Garin's Fight
1: The Roina were a population assimilated and bound to life in their particular habitat, masters of their beloved Roin. We think George designed them this way on purpose, as to make their eventual displacement all the more heart-wrenching. With the men all but dead, it was women and children who filled every available boat, The legend of 10,000 ships might be exaggerated, but bear in mind the collection also included
2: rafts and pole boats. And the impromptu exodus faced immediate and severe problems, from the jaws of one hell to another. Many vessels weren't seaworthy, causing either sinking, loss or retreat into the arms of slavers. Another dilemma was the fact that the Roynar were aimless. They sought provisions at the Basilisk Isles, where pirates united to burn two-score ships and take the passengers as slaves.
1: And the Corsairs returned to offer a settlement on the Isle of Toads, so long as she provided children as regular human tributes. With a defiance that seems typically Roynish, she refused to sell out her own people. Instead, she headed for Sothorios, where the Roinar would attempt to settle. Only desperation could have led them this far south, as the continent was notoriously inhospitable.
2: And there were riches to be found in Sothorios, yet it wasn't worth the cost of the discomfort. Disease, fevers, plagues, boils and sores... Manifested amidst the oppressive environment where dangerous animals, slavers and wild natives all took their toll. Remembering the Roina were river people, these local rivers proved perilous and deadly. It must have seemed as if every part of nature was feeding off them. And after a year, a settlement was found empty similar to the disappearance of the English Roanoke colonists during the New World expeditions. So, Nymeria renewed her exodus.
1: And Nath was next, where at least they were welcomed by the peaceful locals. However, visitors to the island have to contend with the deadly butterfly fever disease, which does a great job keeping slavers off the island. Unfortunately, it also seems to have overcome the Roinar, who tasted the mortal illness and retreated back to the sea.
2: Nymeria then led her people to the Summer Isles, where Wulanu quickly became known as the Isle of Women. With a poor yield of food, the Roinar now suffered starvation on this stony isle. The yearning for a past life was attractive for those losing faith in their leader. So some left for the Mother Royne, only to meet a predictable and unfortunate fate of slaughter or enslavement.
1: And it's difficult to say how scared and lost these people must have been at this point. They had endured unimaginable suffering since their fathers, husbands and lovers had first been annihilated by Dragonflame. After the slavers, disease, famine, and all the unspeakable pain, fear, and uncertainty they had undergone, they looked to their leader for what must certainly have been a final roll of the dice.
2: Unfortunately, Nymeria rolled towards Dawn. We covered some of Nymeria's Dawnish exploits in our Southern Legends episode, but to briefly round off the story here, Mors Martel married her and the Rhoynar managed to assimilate into the Dornish culture, with Nymeria burning her fleet to declare this permanence. This alliance provided cultural boons for the area and soon Mors and Nymeria were conquering Dorn. The immigrants and hosts found a mutually beneficial way to live and Nymeria had a profound and lasting effect on Dornish culture, making her one of the most influential rulers in the entire history of Westeros.
1: The story of the Rhoynar and their asylum-seeking is harrowing and distressing, but through persistence and perseverance in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds, hope and happiness prevailed. So goes the last great migration from Essos to Westeros, although Daenerys and a huge host might soon be sailing west as well. She would do well to learn from the trials and tribulations of Princess Nymeria, who escaped slavery to become a ruler and whose ten thousand ships will be legendary forevermore. As for the fate of the original antagonists, the Valyrians, we'll discuss their comeuppance later in the episode. Next, We'll take a trip to Andalos with Hugor of the Hill.
2: This is Andalos, my friend, the land your Andals came from. They took it from the hairy men who were here before them, cousins to the hairy men of Ebe.
1: We pass through Andalos in and Tyrion's point of view in A Dance with Dragons, albeit the southern marches, which are called the Flatlands. True Andalos is further north, but as we journey from Pentos to the Rhine, we at least get a taste of the area, enough to bring the historic civilization into the conversation.
2: And just as the civilization of the Rhine is a shadow of its former self, so is Andalos whose name reveals this as the home of the Andals, that is, before they struck west and invaded Westeros. With such a successful offensive, they must have been plentiful in number to drive back the first men so thoroughly. Armed with superior weaponry, namely iron blades, and infused with the love of their faith, the seven, the Andals stormed through Westeros.
1: And thankfully, Dance with Dragons offers an origin story that endeavors to explain both the Andal civilization and their faith, and the rather succinct tale revolves around the legendary Hugo of the Hill. From his title, the hill refers to Andalos itself, with this northeastern area of Essos being notably hilly.
2: The sacred book of the faith, the seven-pointed star, speaks of a golden land amidst towering mountains, when Hugor of the hill received his visions of the bounty that would one day belong to the Andals.
1: So it's implied Hugor was the first king of the Andals who received his crown from the father himself. According to the faith, quote, the seven themselves had once walked the hills of Andalus in human form.
2: The seven is a religion with seven aspects to God along similar lines to Christianity's inclusion of a holy trinity equaling God. Those aspects are the father for justice, the mother for love and protection, the warrior for courage, the smith for strength, the maid for beauty and innocence, the crone for wisdom and the stranger for unknowing and death.
1: In the story of Hugor Hill, they appeared as people to empower and aid him. The father began by, reaching his hand into the heavens and pulling down seven stars. One by one, he set them on the brow of Hugor of the Hill to make a glowing crown.
2: Then the maid brought him a beautiful girl who was supple and had deep blue andal eyes. Of course, this was to be Hugor's bride. And it would seem the maiden was both sexually appealing and destined to be fertile, as that would be the mother's contribution.
1: And more along those lines, the crone added a prophecy that the girl would bear 44 mighty sons for Hugor. When the foretelling came true, the warrior imbued them with strength, while the smith armoured them in iron plate. Although it clearly mentions that all seven were present in human form, there's no mention of the stranger's contribution. Either it didn't make one, or perhaps its contribution was obvious given its grim reaper role. In any case, as usual with the stranger, the faith don't seem very comfortable discussing it.
2: No, they don't. And in any case, we can see that according to the faith, usually rooted in the seven-pointed star religious texts, the aspects combined not only to sanction Hugor's reign, but to ensure he spawned the basis of a mighty civilization.
1: In another legend, that of Eleni in Durangod's God's Grief, we saw how a human wed divinity. Here with Hugor we see the divine as overseers, abetting a human in order to bless and encourage a new culture. The truth of the story in-universe depends where you stand with religion, but the Seven is now the dominant faith in most of Westeros. New gods brought across the Narrow Sea.
2: It's interesting that this tale, in a typically fractured manner, comes to us from Tyrion's rather skeptical mouth. So well-informed is the imp on this matter, Illyrio can't help but be impressed. At which point Tyrion confesses he planned to become a High Septon himself before falling in love with Tisha. A concept we find quite amusing in light of his fondness for wine, women and kinslaying. One can wonder how these pastimes are viewed by the Seven-Pointed Star.
1: And speaking of the Bible of the Seven, the book also recounts a vision of a golden land amidst towering mountains that Hugor of the Hill received, foretelling the bounty that would one day belong to the Andals, which Andal interprets to be the Vale, the first place that they won from the first men. Apparently the vision came from the Seven themselves, who promised Hugor and his descendants great kingdoms in a foreign land leading the faith to highlight this as the sole reason for their Western ambitions.
2: However, there is an opposing school of thought. Taking a wider scope, the story of the Andals becomes more familiar. The World Book notes, For a few centuries, as the Andals prospered in the hills of Andalos, they were left more or less to themselves. But with the fall of old Gis, Came the great surge of conquest and colonization from the freehold of Valeria as they expanded their domains and sought more slaves.
1: So the Andals had the same problem as the Roinar that we investigated earlier. The three civilizations coexisted for a time with the Roin providing a natural barrier with the Valerians, reinforced by Roinish might. However, once Volantis was developed by the Freehold to capitalize on river commerce, the Andals became vulnerable as the strategic location of that city allowed for the mass transit of troops.
2: Perhaps after some skirmishes at first, and maybe even after teaming up with the Rhoynar, some scholars believe the Andals recognized the inevitability of their destruction and enslavement at Valyrian hands. It's then, according to this thinking, that the Andals decided to move.
1: And they first retreated to the Axe, a peninsula in northwestern Essos, and then the coast, fleeing from persecutions by the Valyrians, which included a strict intolerance of the Seven. With their religion under threat, many Andals became extremists in their faith as they gathered ships and set sail for Westeros. When they landed in the Fingers, collected their strength, and began battling the first men, this newfound zealotry might have been their impetus to defeat the resistance of those first men and strive for religious dominance. Many weirwoods were burned in the ensuing wars.
2: So Yandel offers two main schools of thought on the inspiration for the Andal invasion. Firstly, that it had been prophesied by the Seven to Hugo of the Hill, or alternatively, that the pressure of increasing persecution by the Valerians led to a forced migration. In our own opinion, and one we think Yandel is slightly foolish for not considering, is that these two ideas are not mutually exclusive and there's every chance prophecy and the need to relocate could have hinged together to galvanise Andals' will to invade a new continent.
1: Having earlier discussed the Roinar, there are clear parallels with both parties' struggles against the Freehold, and one can only wonder what would have come to pass if Garin the Great had sought the same path of retreat from the Dragonlords rather than engaging with them. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, and the Roinar were more bound to their environment than a people who might have had the word of God that their fate lay elsewhere.
2: As it was, the Andals found their promised great kingdoms in a foreign land were largely victorious against the First Men and spread the faith of the Seven far and wide. It was a colossal movement of people, a successful plan and it all began with the legendary Hugo of the Hill and his guidance from the Seven. Whatever the truth of the legend, it's the belief in it that has become an important part of SoC and Westerosi culture helping to shape countless lives since.
1: And, incidentally, there might be a grimmer information on Hugor from lore. They were a group of swan maidens, which means women who could turn themselves into swans, who lured travelers to their deaths. A man named Huko, who led the Andels at that time, found the swan maidens and killed seven of them. Not, however, for their crimes, but simply as a sacrificial offering for the seven. The Andel notes that Huko could be translated as Hugor, as we saw with Garth Greenhand in Southern Legends, there are sometimes dark, lesser-spoken undercurrents to these old legends revolving around human sacrifice.
2: And next we have another Eastern legend that's both dark and light, and has spread far and wide. As we investigate the tale of Azora High,
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better?
1: In ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azor Ahai come again, and the darkness shall flee before him.
2: As in the quote we just heard, Azor Ahai Reborn is foretold to have a huge role to play in the latter part of the series. Introduced in A Clash of Kings by Melisandre and causing much intrigue, fans have been speculating on who this apparent saviour will be ever since.
1: And the quote came from Stannis' alleged fulfillment of the prophecy, the Red Woman attempting to force fate and make him the Savior, whilst burning the Andel Seven and preaching her valorous beliefs. However, Melisandre's conviction is questioned by characters and readers alike, with the ceremony reeking of a charlatan sham. There's also evidence creeping into the texts that seems to support Daenerys Targaryen or Jon Snow, which are held in far higher regard by fans than Melisandre's assertions.
2: And we evaluate the evidence for these characters being Azora High reborn in our Prophecy episode, that's episode 21. But here, our focus is going to be on the original legend of Azora High, who apparently existed thousands of years prior to the current events. Typically shrouded in mystery, Azor Ahai is a legend of the East which is first delivered to the reader by the unquestionably reliable source of a sailor's word of mouth.
1: And central to Azor Ahai are his wife, Nissa, Nissa and his sword, Lightbringer, who it's implied become one and the same. Having seen Stannis's sword burnt rather than burning, Davos is Schooled on the Legend of Lightbringer by Salador's San. And here it is. Do you know the tale of the forging of Lightbringer? I shall tell it to you. It was a time when darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, a hero must have a hero's blade, oh, like none that had ever been. And so, for thirty days and thirty nights, as High labored sleepless in the temple, forging a blade in the sacred fires. Heat and hammer and fold, heat and hammer and fold, oh yes, until the sword was done. Yet when he plunged it into water to temper the steel, it burst asunder. Being a hero, it was not for him to shrug, so again he began. The second time it took him fifty days and fifty nights, and this sword seemed even finer than the first, as Orahai captured a lion to temper the blade by plunging it through the beast's red heart, but once more the steel shattered and split. Great was his woe, and great was his sorrow then, for he knew what he must do. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa, Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name, bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why, I cannot say, and Azorah High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes.
2: Before we discuss the massive impact that this legend has had in the East, we'll give our thoughts on this passage. First of all, it's set in a time of darkness, laying heavy on the world. While such a description in our world might be a metaphor for political or economic hardship, in George's world, this clearly relates to the long night. Although it's left unclear how the perpetual darkness relates to the others, Can they control blackness, or do they follow it? What seems certain is that the Long Night, as recounted in Westeros, related this continuing lack of light inextricably with the others. The best account we have is found in the legend of the last hero, which we have covered in the Northern Legends episode.
1: And the significance of the burning sword in the story also supports the notion that the mentioned darkness was literal as well as metaphorical. A flaming sword that burns without fuel makes great sense when there is no light, at the least it would provide warmth and a beacon, as well as threatening or dismaying any foe particularly averse to fire. We can think of no reason why a flaming sword would bear so much significance if the mentioned darkness wasn't literal and the hero's foes were not weakened by flame. This passage from A Dance with Dragons supports the notion that Azor Ahai's enemies were both non-human and vulnerable to fire. In battle, the blade burned fiery hot. Once Azor Ahai fought a monster, When he thrust the sword through the belly of the beast, its blood began to boil. Smoke and steam poured from its mouth, its eyes melted and dribbled down its cheeks, and its body burst into flame.
2: He had definite shades there of Samwell killing the other. And with the naming of his sword as Lightbringer... And Azor High being mentioned in the Long Night section of the world book, the sensible conclusion we think is that Azor Ahai fought against others and whites in the Long Night, using his sword that we see him make in the passage. The greater question is, is this the same Long Night as described by the Westerosi legends, or is it a different one, which we will be considering today?
1: And back to the text, and the focus is on the construction of Lightbringer. The hero must have a hero's blade like none that had ever been. This line demonstrates as Ahai became aware at some point of what he needed to do to defeat his foe. Our minds are taken back to the last hero whose sword was broken when we first saw him, and recall that the same fate befell Waymar Royce's blade when he fought an other. Whether from experience or from wisdom that was shared with him, Azorahai might have been designing a sword that would be able to stand against ice magic.
2: And this tells us two things, that Azorahai was a skilled smith, likely a professional, and that he was required to invent Lightbringer as well as forge it. For all we know, the fate of humanity might have been riding on the manufacture of this new tool. Unfortunately, the legend doesn't share what hardships the darkness had already brought to Azor High and his people, and exactly what was at stake as we get with The Last Hero's Tale. But darkness falling on the world implies to us that it could have been the world and humanity itself at stake here.
1: And so Azor Ahai set about with his invention. His first attempt took 30 days, and he seems to have been sleepless in his labor, a sign of his desperation to complete the blade, perhaps. The heat hammer and fold technique he employs is clearly steelmaking, and the product is described as steel in the very next line. This is notable because Azor Ahai was likely far ahead of his time with this technology, making good on the requirement of inventing and creating a unique blade. The only steel of that era was, coincidentally or not, the last hero's dragon steel, which was lethal to others and employed only after his original sword broke, and he met the Children of the Forest, purveyors of magical wisdom.
2: Yeah, and this leads us to wonder if these two legends are one and the same. But anyway, Azor Ahai had some way to go before killing anything. His blade... First when tempered in water, so he tried again, this time taking fifty days and nights of relentless smithery to produce another blade. If we're right about the world being at stake in a long night apocalypse scenario, we imagine Azurahai High in absolute and sheer panic to finish his sword, with time pressing firmly against him. He would have been growing more and more desperate. He captured a lion, which is no mean feat, and this time a blood sacrifice was used to temper the blade, as he struck the sword through the lion's heart. But the sacrifice was not great enough, and the blade shattered once again.
1: Great was his woe, and great was his sorrow then, for he knew what he must do, it says. With time running out, Azor Ahai realized, what he probably suspected all along, that the forging of a magical blade of this magnitude was going to require a blood sacrifice that was enormously valuable to him. In A Storm of Swords, there's this pertinent dialogue from Stannis and Melisandre. Sacrifice is never easy, Davos, or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. Melisandre said, Azorahai, tempered lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife, if a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing, but a man who offers the only cow he owns.
2: So the gist is, in this world with these mysterious deities, true sacrifice requires a weighty offering, and we assume Azorahai was well aware of this logic, given he eventually succeeded in perhaps the most significant piece of magic ever in this world. After 100 days and nights of toil, he called in his wife, Nissa Nissa, and asked her to bare her breast. She agreed to do so and quote, Azor High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart.
1: And so Nissa Nissa became the blood sacrifice needed to temper Lightbringer, perhaps literally giving her heart to save humanity and stop unspeakable suffering. Her final scream was one of agony and ecstasy, leaving a crack across the moon, a line that links us to Doria's story, which we'll discuss later, and perhaps one not to be taken entirely literally.
2: And finally, we learn that Nissa's blood, soul, spirit, and courage all go into the steel, meaning that Azura High can now face his foe with his wife kind of embodied in this blade. That sword is a part of him, his wife, and a literal and symbolic testament to the tremendous sacrifice. Lightbringer is now in its final form a burning blade, the Red Sword of Heroes, and Azura High is ready to save the world. Judging by the impact this legend has had on Essos, which we'll be evaluating, Azura High succeeded in that mission, and now it seems that Lightbringer must be lit again to play the same role in the current story, if there's going to be a parallel. And if there is going to be a parallel, Azor sacrificing Nissa Nissa moment, expect it to be one of the emotive climaxes of the entire saga.
1: So, this is an excellent legend that seems to exude monumental importance from the moment it comes from Salador-san's lips and anchors the theme of sacrifice in the novels brilliantly well. Speaking of which, despite being named as a hero repeatedly, there are those who think Azor Ahai was some kind of nut job psychopath because he killed his wife. And removed from context, we can see why. In its context, though, we see reason to disagree with this outlook and the discussion is one we're sure George would be glad we're having.
2: Yes, I'm sure he would. In the main story, the theme of sacrifice arises with Melisandra, a religious zealot, and Stannis, an iron-willed leader who considers himself king. The former knows how to corrupt the latter, and it's not long before they are all colluding in a plan to burn young Edric Storm, Stannis's own nephew. They both have the realm's interest at heart, believing such a spilling of king's blood would save mankind. Melisandre even cites Azor Ahai as justification, as we heard earlier.
1: However, the reader knows that Melisandre, whatever her intentions, is not trustworthy as a magician. In spite of genuine prowess, she misinterprets visions and as such is dangerous as an intermediary with the divine forces. We know burning Edric wouldn't save the millions, Stannis claims, and if Tavo Seaworth hadn't intervened and the child had been burned alive, Stannis would have committed one of the greatest evils and all for nothing.
2: Which brings us to Azura High. His situation is really akin to Stannis's. Yet, there are some crucial differences we think most prominently that his intentions to save mankind and therefore service the greater good actually come into fruition. These are the dilemmas and dynamics George R. R. Martin loves to explore and expect this theme to become prominent in the remaining two books.
1: Yeah, so Azor Ahai's sacrifice worked and he went on to win his war. That's what separates him from Stannis' would-be child burning. The first man is a hero, the second would have been considered an infinite villain had he burned the young Edric Storm. George once said that he sometimes asks friends of his, those who are parents, if they would kill another child to save their own. It's this kind of moral philosophizing and rumination that he enjoys and so has imbued the text with, and these questions of sacrifice are the absolute pinnacle of the sensation he frequently refers to as the human heart in conflict with itself.
2: Yeah, so we think that this kind of dismissal of Azora High as an outright villain might miss the point because it sidesteps George's marvellous creation of immense greyness and dilemma around the context. The legend to us asks the question, if saving the world meant you had to kill the person you love most, what would you do? And that's a question we ask to all of you listeners now. Would you let the world and everyone in it burn or freeze, as it probably was in Azor Ahai's case? Or would you go through with it and offer your most precious love as a sacrifice? And this is the kind of dilemma that fantasy literature can present that other forms of literature can't. What kind of person would you be if you let everyone die because you wouldn't make the sacrifice? you have George's permission to feel uncomfortable while you mediate on that dilemma. And for what it's worth, his friends unanimously agreed they would kill another child to save their own. We're just glad George's philosophical no-win scenarios are confined to fantasy and our imaginations.
1: Yeah, I think I want to leave that one in fantasy because thinking about that dilemma, my heart is truly in conflict with itself. So, after his failed attempts, whereas Orihai might have been forestalling the inevitable need for his wife's blood, his woe and sorrow at the final realization are conveyed, as is his love, and it should be noted that unlike Edric Storm, Nissa, Nissa seems to consent to the stabbing, meaning she self-sacrificed. We wonder if this consent could have been a factor in the success of the magic. It's also notable that there was both agony and ecstasy in her scream. The presence of agony would be obvious in her death, but with the ecstasy, George is communicating some great happiness from Nissa Nissa at that moment, curious for someone being stabbed. Could it be that she fully realized the significance of saving the world via her own sacrifice, her heart in conflict with itself as it was run through amidst polarizing sadness and love? This seems to us to be part of what's being conveyed here.
2: And finally, Nyssa's essence is noted to become the blade, and Azura High might well have used it to defeat the others and, like we said, save the world, bringing light and warmth back to a ruined civilization. Here George has added a dash of romance to the sacrifice and if you find that tasteless, then take it up with him. But we think it's his clear intention in this most unusual of moral contexts.
1: And as you can tell, we find a spectrum of morality embedded in this story, revolving around a grand and extreme dilemma that could really only exist in fantasy, as well as an excellent framework for exploring the central theme of sacrifice, both from a literary and morality viewpoint. Now, let's focus on the legend and its effect on Essos.
2: It is also written that there are annals in Ashai of such a darkness and of a hero who fought against it with a red sword. His deeds are said to have been performed before the rise of Valyria in the earliest age when Old Ghis was first forming its empire. This legend has spread west from Ashai and the followers of Relor claim that this hero was named Azor Ahai, and prophecy his return.
1: As mentioned by Malessandra, and again in the world book as we just heard, the legend of Azor Ahai comes from the mysterious city of Ashai at the edge of the known world to the east. However, there seems to be evidence of localised versions of the tale all over Essos, underlining how monumental this man was to culture across the eastern continent.
2: In the World Book it says, How long the darkness endured, no man can say. But to all agree that it was only when a great warrior, known variously as Haikun the Hero, Azor Ahai, Yintar, Neferion and Eldric Shadow Chaser arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword, Lightbringer. That the darkness was put to rout and light and love returned once more to the world.
1: So, a collection of names are given for Azor Ahai, and at first glance, they might seem random. However, on closer inspection of the world book, we can identify their culture of origin and so visualize an Azorahai map of Essos.
2: So in the Far Eastern Ashai, we have Azorahai. As noted, he forged a magical burning blade and fought against the darkness. Of significance is the Jade Compendium, a book written by Koloko Votar. Following his travels around the Jade Sea, which neighbors Ashai. The book collated legends, including unique accounts of Azurahai.
1: Next, we have the name Yintar, which we can attribute to both Yiti and the preceding mythical civilization of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Yiti is a nation and region of great history which lies west and up the coast from Ashai, sharing the Jade Sea. We can guess that Yintar relates to Yi Ti because their capital city is called Yin.
2: The World Book also gives us this information from the aforementioned Jade Compendium. Votar recounts a curious legend from Yi Ti which states that the sun hid its face from the earth for a lifetime, ashamed at something none could discover, And that disaster was averted only by the deeds of a woman with a monkey's tail.
1: So, the sun hiding its face for a lifetime. By now, this should be familiar. It evokes the long night, remembering old Nan's description that there came a night that lasted a generation. Notice how different locations have differing ways of describing the same thing. And as we'll see, a common theme is to have their own interpretations of how the darkness was overcome.
2: Yiti was preceded by the Great Empire of the Dawn, and so Yintar might have been their hero. The empire worshipped the gods including the Lion of the Night and the Maiden Maid of Light, which seem like gods of day and night, also metaphors for life and death. In a time of political turmoil, their Amethyst Empress was murdered by her own brother in an act known as the Blood Betrayal. He took control of the Empire and began a reign of terror that apparently included all manner of taboo practices from despicable magic to cannibalism.
1: And in response to this horror, the Maiden of Light turned her back on the world and the Lion of Night, quote, came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men. Just like with Yi e. we have another clear allusion to the Long Night. The Empire localises the cause to their own politics, which we suggest is a case of coincidence in George's expression of men putting themselves at the centre of their own universe.
2: The World Book also offers the alias Nefarian for Azorahai. Looking along the northern coast, directly in line with Yi Ti, is a port city named Nefer, which presumably relates to Nefarian. This is the capital of the Ningai kingdom.
1: And another moniker is Herkun the Hero. This surely relates to the patrimony of Herkun, an ancient nation to the west of eastern Essos. The accompanying picture in the world book depicts Hercun exactly how you would imagine as Orhai, with Lightbringer in hand, and the naming of the patrimony of Herkun suggests that they are claiming descent from this hero.
2: And the final name, Eldric Shadow Chaser, is an outlier in that it doesn't seem to have any grounding in Eastern Essos. Curiously, it sounds decidedly Western, perhaps suggesting Andal origin. Remember the Andals would have been in Essos then? And it's notable that others are described as shadows from the very first prologue.
1: So east of the Bone Mountains, which serve as the great geographical and cultural divider in Essos. We have the Far East, a place which demonstrates evidence of the Long Night and Azorah High in all directions. The little darkness having befell this region, just as it did in Old Man's Tale of Northern Westeros, is overtly communicated to us by George. What might be more obscure is Azor High's influence west of the Bow Mountains.
2: Here, yeah, first of all, there's the Rhoynar around their pervasive river. Explorer Lomas Longstrider encountered descendants of the Roina who told tales, quote, of a darkness that made the Ruin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Suluru.
1: They also claimed the sun only returned when a hero convinced Mother Ruin's many children, lesser gods such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside the bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day.
2: So, here once again a depiction of the long night with a localised explanation as to the cause and a hero saving the day. Could it be that some of these civilizations didn't and couldn't know of the root cause of the dark phenomenon that was blighting them, but try to understand it within the framework of their own culture and understanding?
1: And east of the Rhine lies the remains of the kingdom of Sarnor. Their hero and legendary ancestor was called, wait for it, Husor am I? Surely another allusion to Azor High. Legend has it that he was born of the last Fisher Queen from an entirely different realm. It sounds to us that the patrimony of her were not the only ones claiming blood kinship from Azor High. Given our look at Garth Greenhand in the last episode and how half the Reach were claiming kinship to him at one point, any such claims should be taken well salted. Everyone wants to be related to the hero.
2: And let's enter more speculative territory where there's Bravos, whose entrance is punctuated by a huge statue. Simply called the Titan of Bravos, the depiction is never given a real identity or context, which we find rather strange. We wonder if the last hero is being depicted not only for the use of bronze, but this warrior figure is also carrying a broken sword, as did the last hero. Why would the Bravosi depict the last hero, you might ask? Well, this idea really makes a lot more sense if the last hero and Azor Ahai were one and the same. Then Bravos would be doing the same as the other places in Essos in acknowledging the magnitude of Azor Ahai's achievements.
1: And finally, in Essos, we have Doria's tale from Karth, in which we see strong connections with the Lightbringer tale, but we'll have a full section on that one later. So, even with a couple of speculative associations, there is widespread documentation of the Long Knight and a heroic savior in Essos, as there was in Westeros. The million-dollar question remains, were these separate incidents and heroes, or separate accounts of the same series of events?
2: It is also from these histories that we learn of the long night, when a season of winter came that lasted a generation. A generation in which children were born, grew into adulthood, and in many cases died without ever seeing the spring. Indeed, some of the old wives' tales say that they never even beheld the light of day. So complete was the winter that fell on the world.
1: So, whether there was one long night or multiples in separate places has been a hotly debated question, especially centering around the issue of whether Azor Ahai and the last hero were the same person. There's an objection in that the Azor Ahai myth is Eastern. And because of this easternness, some argue, it can't correlate to the decidedly Westerosi last hero tale.
2: However, tales can spread. And if the whole world suffered the same curse, lifted by a single hero, it's logical that Chinese whispers could take stories far and wide along trade routes and so on, with locals thousands of miles away adapting the lore to fit their own culture. Just because the legend is Eastern, we think it doesn't mean it can't have been inspired by Western events over the millennia.
1: And there's also the idea that there's no evidence in Westeros that Azor Ahai was there. However, as you'd expect from a mystery, George could be employing subtlety, looking at the Night's Watch vows and we interpret I am the sword in the darkness as a clear allusion to Lightbringer. Pair it with the quotes... Even Azor Ahai did not win his war alone, and that the Night's Watch banded together to win the war for the Dawn. And you can make a decent case that Azor Ahai might have fought alongside the men in black.
2: And another point of contention is the existence of the five forts on the boundaries of Yi e. These magnificent ancient buildings stand almost a thousand feet tall and it's claimed they were constructed to keep the Lion of the Night's demons away from the realms of men. So, the five forts might indicate the Great Empire of the Dawn were waging their own war during a long night.
1: However, taking a closer look at the geography and we can see that the five forts separate the realm of men from the land of the Shrikes. This land is said to be populated by, quote, shrieking monsters who are described as lizard-like. The forts happen to block any path for the Shrikes to engage with humans, obstructing the only way through the Mountains of the Morn and the Bleeding Sea.
2: So these could feasibly be the reference demons, but we definitely think... George intended that the Five Forts would stimulate debate about the Long Night and whether there were one or two or many of them on purpose, as is his style of mystery cultivation. He often employs some contentiousness in order to confuse and divide readers and get us arguing amongst ourselves.
1: For us, though, there being one single Long Night with one saviour is highly appealing. It's the smoothest solution to this tangle from a literary standpoint. We see evidence of the long night all over Essos, yet the extinction level event bears more weight as one which affected the entire world. As Yandel says, so complete was the winter that fell on the
2: world. Yeah, the world is talking about the whole world there. As we've said, a confused Essos trying to make sense of an incredible catastrophe that blighted them all, but originated and ended thousands of miles away, could feasibly lead to the variety of similar yet localized legends we've seen today.
1: Having multiple Long Nights or others' invasions seems a bit messy to us. We said in our Long Night episode, quite a long time ago, that the fact that the Others came from northern Westeros, correlating to where the Children of the Forest had retreated to, was too much of a coincidence for us. With multiple Long Nights, we would have to have the Others or their ilk being created multiple times, half a world away, and despite evidence of children in Essos, neither of us really favor that idea. It seems to us like a solitary, dark miracle that they came into existence, whatever the specifics.
2: And as well as two or more tribes of others being created and multiple long night events, there would also have to be multiple saviour figures. For us, a far cleaner solution is that this was all the same event, and the world has a shared mythology as a result.
1: And a reveal that Zorahat was in fact the last hero would be an intriguing moment for readers. But nobody's doubting the World Book when it says Zorahai, Herkun the hero, Yintar, Nefarian, and Eldric Shadow were one hero with many names. And given how well their stories fit together, the last hero could well be another. We know the last hero, with a broken sword and unable to stand against the others, found the children. The next thing we know. He's slaughtering others with his unique magic blade.
2: So what happened in between and how the last hero got that sword is a mystery. But there does happen to be a very similar legend that we looked at today where a man makes a unique sword to fight the darkness. We did discuss in our Legends of the North episode if these tales were chapters of the same story. Hero needs blade. Hero makes blade. Hero defeats foe. Whether you agree these heroes are one and the same or not, because there's many different opinions across the fandom, we're sure you've all got your own, we think George would be very satisfied that us readers are in debate.
1: Overall, the Azor high legend is a geographically pervasive and culturally rich mythology that links to the current story very well given that history appears to be repeating itself. As such, ancient wisdoms held in lore could become an essential tool in defeating the others, creating intriguing dynamics between past, present, and future. Expect Azor Ahai Reborn to lead the charge against the others, but by no means by himself. And as we said, we anticipate the reigniting of Lightbringer through the willing heart of a new Nissa Nissa to be one of the emotional and thematic... Pinnacles of the series.
2: Yes, we do. We think it's going to happen. Not everybody does, but we do. And we're currently wondering about Jon Snow sacrificing Daenerys with Dawn for that moment. That's our current way we're thinking about it. But again, we're sure that each of you has your own ideas and predictions for this moment. Some people don't even think it's going to happen. But this is a sure sign that George's mystery writing is doing what it should. Everyone's got their opinions on Nissanissa Nissa and Azura High. And anyway, earlier we mentioned Doria's story about the cracked moon. Given we see Shades of Azura High there, we're going to have a look at that one next.
1: "'It was said that manticores prowled the islands of the Jade Sea, "'that basilisks infested the jungles of Yi-Ti, e. "'that spell-singers, warlocks, and aromancers "'practiced their arts openly in Asha'i, "'while shadow-binders and blood-mages "'worked terrible sorceries in the black of night. "'Why shouldn't there be dragons, too?' "'No, dragon, he said. "'Brave men killed them, for dragon. "'Terrible, evil beasts, it is known.' "'It is known,' agreed Chiqui.' A trader from Karth once told me that dragons came from the moon, Blonde Doria said.
2: In a Game of Thrones, and unlike her brother Viserys, Daenerys begins to bond with the Dothraki. She forms a good rapport with her three wedding gift handmaidens, Eri, Jiqui and Doria. She also begins to form some kind of bond with three other of her gifts, the three stone dragon's eggs.
1: And her designs to hatch the eggs creep into the narrative almost subconsciously at first, and she begins to wonder about the plight of dragons. She turns to her handmaidens for their wisdom and insights, which are often raw yet very interesting. In spite of agreement that dragons are lost forever, a part of Danny's mind remains unsatisfied. Dragons are gone, Khaleesi, Eerie said. Dead? agreed Jeekui, long and long ago. Viserys had told her that the last Targaryen dragons had died no more than a century and a half ago during the reign of Aegon, who was called the Dragon's That didn't seem so long ago to Danny. Everywhere, she said, disappointed, even in the east?
2: With Irian Jiqui agreeing that the demise of dragons is no loss given their inherent evil, as they see it anyway, Doria brings legend into the discussion with an origin story all about dragons. Here's the passage.
1: A trader from Karth once told me that dragons came from the moon. Blonde Doria said, as she warmed a towel over the fire. "'Chiqui and Eerie were of an age with Danny, Dothraki girls taken as slaves when Drogo destroyed their father's Kalisar. Doria was older, almost twenty. Magister Illyrio had found her in a pleasure house in Lys. Silvery wet hair tumbled across her eyes as Danny turned her head, curious. The moon? He told me the moon was an egg, Khaleesi, the Lysine girl said, Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand, thousand dragons poured forth and drank the fire of the sun. That is why dragons breathe flame. One day the other moon will kiss the sun, too, and then it will crack, and the dragons will return. The two Dothraki girls giggled and laughed. You are foolish straw-head slave, Eerie said, moon is no egg. Moon is God, woman, wife of sun. It is known. It is known, Chiqui agreed.
2: So, a really interesting legend with many different interpretations from the fandom, not surprisingly. And as ever, we'll break it down and share our own thoughts. The first thing to note is that it seems to come from Karth, which is as east as you can get without being in the far east.
1: And the tale revolves around an alleged second moon in the sky. It has a primitive, dreamy feel and perhaps shouldn't be taken literally. One of the moons was scorched by the sun and cracked. Out poured a thousand dragons because that moon was in fact an egg this sounds like a legend that tries to explain something that its authors simply couldn't understand.
2: And the part where the dragons drink from the sun, hence their dragon flame, borrows off a rich tradition of fire acquisition legends from our own world, most notably Prometheus of Greek legend, stealing the heavenly fire for humanity, enabling the progress of civilization.
1: Then the tale turns prophetic as it predicts that dragons will return when the remaining moon is similarly scorched by the sun. The story, as it is, further centralizes the theme of Danny wanting to hatch her eggs, bearing in mind this tale was relayed after they were warmed by the sun. Her eventual hatching of them on the pyre was born of instinct, and Doria's story, as well as dreams and other tidbits contribute to her subconscious and her state of mind going into that miracle.
2: However, no sooner is the tale told than Iri's remark causes the reader to immediately re-evaluate what they've just read. She says, Moon is no egg, moon is God, woman wife of sun, it is known. And This really changes the complexion of the whole story, we think.
1: Yeah, it seems that George wants us to view the tale again through Erie's lens. With the moons as wives and the sun as a husband, the story feels increasingly allegorical. We wonder if the story of a wife bursting into flames because of her husband seems familiar? Could this be a loose and primitive telling of the legend of Lightbringer, given what we've wondered about his soci-cultural tendencies to understand major events in unique ways?
2: So in this interpretation, the first moon, or wife, was Nissa Nissa, the son, or the husband, was Azorahai, and the dragons were a metaphor for the great fiery force of Lightbringer. The second moon being predicted to repeat the feat of bursting into flame would then be suggesting that there's another Nissa Nissa in the span of the books.
1: And the fact that it's introduced in Danny's arc, we think, could be significant. And to support a sort of Nissa Nissa reborn in the main story, we'll also highlight a direct link between the two tales. In this story of two moon wives, we get the first moon cracking from the heat of the sun. And when Nissa Nissa dies in the Azora tale, unleashing the fiery force, it says she, quote, left a crack across the face of the moon. One has to wonder why George left this subtle but clear link, which highlights the plausibility that one tale was adapted from the other.
2: Given some associate believe the Long Night was caused by the Emperor's actions, and others believe it was remedied by a crab and a tortoise singing a secret song together, we don't think it's too outlandish to suggest Doria's story might be a primitive, devolved telling of the legend of Lightbringer. While we can't say it is known just yet, we do hope you enjoyed this look at the mysterious legend from Carth. The tale of our beginnings. If you would be one of us, you had best know who we are and how we came to be. Men may whisper of the faceless men of Bravos, but we are older than the secret city. Before the Titan rose, before the unmasking of Uthero, before the founding, we were. We have flowered in Bravos amongst these northern fogs, but we first took root in Valyria amongst the wretched slaves who toiled in the deep mines beneath the fourteen flames that lit the freeholds' nights of old.
1: Bravos and the Faceless Men are brought to us primarily in Arya's Arc as she visits the island and becomes pupil of the feared Assassin's Guild. Her learning is overseen by the wise, kindly man, which gives George the perfect vessel with which to provide exposition about the free city and the organization.
2: Bravos was a secret city founded by escaped slaves in the time of the Valyrian Freehold. While aboard a Valyrian slave ship, The defiant passengers rebelled. The world book explains, Legend says that the Moonsingers prophesied that the fleet must travel far north to a forlorn corner of Essos, a place of mudflats and brackish water and fogs. There, the slaves first laid the foundations of their city.
1: So, in this legend, we have an all-too-rare example of prophecy coming to fruition for positive ends. The wisdom of the Moonsingers, who are priests of the Jogos in the Far East, took the slave boat to what would be Bravos. With the seclusion and heavy fog causing myopia for the freehold, the island was the perfect hideout and remained secret for a century.
2: And being a society of escaped slaves must have attracted the faceless men to their shores, who are now based there in the House of Black and White. This company of elite assassins are devout to the many-faced god, effectively worshipping death in its many incarnations. And we see them administer death as both mercy and murder.
1: Add in their use of glamouring, face-changing magic and their impeccable reputation and altogether the Faceless Men are a truly interesting organisation, to put it mildly. As Arya begins on the road to becoming no one, the kindly man brings us yet more intrigue when he delivers the story of their origin and their legendary founder. Here's an excerpt.
2: Whoever he was, he moved amongst the slaves and would hear them at their prayers. Men of a hundred different nations labored in the mines and each prayed to his own god in his own tongue yet all were praying for the same thing it was release they asked for an end to pain a small thing and simple yet the gods made no answer and their suffering went on are the gods all deaf he wondered, until a realization came upon him one night in the red darkness. All gods have their instruments, men and women who serve them and help to work their will on earth. The slaves were not crying out to a hundred different gods as it seemed, but to one god with a hundred different faces and he was that God's instrument. That very night he chose the most wretched of the slaves, the one who had prayed most earnestly for release and freed him from his bondage. The first gift had been given. He killed
1: the slave? He should have killed the masters.
2: He would bring the gift to them as well. But that tale is for another day, one best shared with no one.
1: So, the Kindly Man schools aria on the origins of the Faceless Men. In the fuller passage from A Feast for Crows, there's more focus on the suffering by slaves in those Valyrian mines, This underpins our episode perfectly, given what's been proposed about the Andal and Roinish migrations. We can see now that even in terms of slavery, being subjugated by the freehold could quickly turn into a living hell.
2: Here the notion of hell is quite appropriate for the descriptions of life inside the mines at the 14 flames. Passages were dug through this volcanic underbelly, deeper and deeper, becoming more inhospitable. The slaves' lungs seared amidst the impossible heat, the rocks beneath them burning through their footwear and scorching their feet, and hidden steam, boiling water or molten rock often proved fatal hazards.
1: And there were monsters lurking in the depths too, fire-breathing fireworms who did not appreciate the presence of men in their habitat. Slaves forced to inhabit these areas perished quickly, underlining why war was incentivized for the Freehold. Altogether, this was some of the worst treatment of people in the series, which is saying something. The Valyrians were despicable in their greed and contempt for basic decency and humanity. The suffering of these slaves is really unimaginable. Any notion of rebellion was contained by their master's sorcery.
2: But from this burning toil came an alternative glimmer of resistance. The suicidal prayers of many men, begging for the same death but from a variety of gods, provided the impetus for the advent of the many-faced god and the faceless men. With a collective god of death being inadvertently worshipped, one man recognised it as a new god, The many faced God, and decided he would serve it as its instrument.
1: And we can thus see why the faceless men are bound to their faith forevermore. Soon the man contributed his first act of service and killed the slave that suffered most, portrayed as freeing him from his bondage. The assassin had, in modern terms, performed a euthanasia, intentionally killing someone to relieve their suffering. Incidentally, this service is still offered at the House of Black and White to this day and is a topic which functions as part of the wider theme of mercy.
2: And then the passage then seems to insinuate that the man killed the masters too. This highlights the duality of the gifts they give. In some instances, their death is a merciful welcome blessing to the recipient. In others, they are using death as a murderous means to an end in this case for revenge, punishment, and the greater good.
1: And some readers interpret this rather ambiguous statement about killing the masters, which was purposefully cut short by George, as an allusion to the doom, insinuating that this man may have caused the cataclysmic downfall of Valyria. While well, the World Book ponders different theories, Septim Barthes believes that the spells that held together Volatile Valeria faltered, and another master wonders if their fire mages were assassinated. Rather than opposing the kindly man's words, we wonder if they could work together. Could the secret cult of the Faceless Men have spread within the torture of the minds until they became organized enough to assassinate the linchpin magicians who held Valeria's lava flow together?
2: We think there's great poetry in the notion that Valeria was levelled by a movement whose origins lay in those hellish mines, where thousands of slaves perished for their master's greed. It would make a great story, we think, and let's hope that we can get more on that from the kindly man in The Winds of Winter.
1: And regardless, the originator of the Faceless Man is a great legend so far, and of course we all want to know who this man was, including Arya Stark. It says, Some say he was a slave himself. Others insist he was a freeholder's son, born of noble stock. Some will even tell you he was an overseer who took pity on his charges. The truth is, no one knows.
2: She is informed that the man was no one, and despite the speculation... The point is that it doesn't matter who he was. He was serving death when he gave his gifts and Arya is learning she must become similarly selfless if she is to succeed in her training. A hidden sword and dreams of a wolf suggest to the reader that she'll always be Arya Stark.
1: And overall, with this legend, George masterfully integrates intriguing backstory within Arya's training, giving us the history of a religion, the company, their ethics, and maybe, just maybe, a clue about the day the Inferno of the Mines came to the Masters in more ways than one.
2: And with all this talk of the Doom, and having seen so much of them as antagonists in this episode, the final section today... Will be all about the end of the freehold and how it was written in prophecy.
1: At its apex, Valyria was the greatest city in the known world, the center of civilization. Within its shining walls, two-score rival houses vied for power and glory in court and council, rising and falling in an endless, subtle, oft-savage struggle for dominance. The Targaryens were far from the most powerful of the Dragonlords, and their rivals saw their flight to Dragonstone as an act of surrender, as cowardice.
2: The Valyrian Empire was dominant at its peak. There had been another dominant city named Old Gis who had mastered the business of slavery and expansion long before Valyria. Old Gis used its slavery to support its military ambitions and began to subjugate neighbours and colonise. As it conquered, Old Gis completed the loop by capturing more slaves. Supply fed the demand, and on and on and on.
1: And the Proto-Valyrians would have undoubtedly feared enslavement themselves, though they were fortunate to find dragons in the Fourteen Flames and, according to legend, were taught dragon mastery by the Ashai.
2: An old gis had shaped a dog-eat-dog world, and suddenly the Valerians controlled the power of dragonfire, after five great wars, they subjugated the Giscari, showing no mercy. Defenders of the Valerians would point out that they were simply administering the same treatment to old Gis as they would have been shown had they lost.
1: So they took the Giscari as their first slaves and evidently learned a lot from their civilization as soon they were running the same enslave-and-conquer feedback loop that we described from Old Gis. They began their expansion, and to facilitate this machine, they needed, according to the world book, copper and tin for the bronze of their weapons and monuments, later iron for the steel of their legendary blades, and always gold and silver to pay for it all.
2: And so we see the overlap with the last segment. They created those nightmarish minds and serviced them with slaves. There's no doubt the Valyrian civilization was great in some senses, but the cost was tremendous, unthinkable and wicked. With dragons making no fight fair, we can understand why they would make impossible neighbours. There must have been an air of invincibility about them at their peak. However, the volcanoes that gave them their initial boon also became their ruin.
1: It seems the Valerians' great mistake was to build their civilization on shaky foundations, quite literally, or else their systematic war machine might have taken the whole world in its thrall. With no Andals or Rhoynar to oppose them, they dominated the area, with evidence for preparation of a strike seen in their establishing an outpost near Westeros, which they named Dragonstone.
2: And then says Maester Yandel, Unexpected to all, save perhaps Aenar Targaryen and his maiden daughter, Daenerys the Dreamer, the Doom came to Valyria. And so we arrive at the legend of Daenerys Targaryen and her dreams. Lord Aenar's maiden daughter Daenerys, known forever afterward as Daenerys the Dreamer, had foreseen the destruction of Valyria by fire. And when the Doom came 12 years later, The Targaryens were the only dragon lords to survive.
1: This look at the Valyrians brings us to the third significant migration to Westeros from Essos. However, with the Andals and Rhoynar, there were great numbers involved, many thousands of people traversing the Narrow Sea. The Valyrian migration is a decidedly different story.
2: Yes, it is. When the doom hit, the immediacy and scale of the cataclysm cannot be overstated. Yandel described events here. Great rents opened in the earth, swallowing palaces, temples and entire towns. Lakes boiled or turned to acid. Mountains burst. Fiery fountains spewed molten rock a thousand feet into the air and red clouds rained down dragonglass and the black blood of demons. To the north, the ground splintered and collapsed and fell in on itself, and an angry sea came boiling in. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. The fabled empire vanished in a day.
1: And with almost all the dragons and dragon lords dying here or in the aftermath, the notable exception was the Targaryens. Never the most prominent of lords in Valyria, the family were now among the remnants of the Empire, having avoided the doom from Dragonstone. However, they didn't owe this evasion to simple good luck, but rather to prophecy.
2: In the previous section, we discussed how the prophecy of the Moonsingers worked out remarkably well for those escaped slaves seeking salvation. The foresight led them to Braavos. Along similar lines... The writings of Daenerys the Dreamer predicted the devastation of Valyria, prompting her father, Aenar Targaryen, to flee in anticipation. Yandel explains, Aenar Targaryen sold his holdings in the Freehold and the lands of the Long Summer and moved with all his wives, wealth, slaves, dragons, siblings, kin and children to Dragonstone a bleak island citadel beneath a smoking mountain in the narrow sea. So Einar must have had the utmost faith in Daenerys's visions, which again display the inherent prophetic abilities of some Targaryens and their dreams, named dragon dreams, whether they focus on dragons or not. The Targaryens were derided as cowardly by the other families, yet 12 years later and his maiden daughter was proven correct.
1: And Danis is briefly mentioned in the main series Only Once, and this by Roderick the Reader. He tells Asha Greyjoy, See here, Marwyn claims to have found three pages of signs and portents, visions written down by the maiden daughter of Aenar Targaryen before the Doom came to Valyria. And given her words were amongst the most pivotal in history, it's a shame she doesn't get a mention by name. She wrote her prophetic dreams in a book now called Science Importance. And we'd love to read the contents of those found three pages discovered by Archmaester Marwyn. A revealing conversation with Daenerys about Valeria would be delightful. And, of course, we can only hope.
2: Other than the fact she married her brother, Gaiman, and had two children little else is known of Daenerys. Nevertheless, her impact was monumental, inspiring safe passage from the Doom, which is essentially the prologue for Aegon Targaryen's invasion 114 years after the Cataclysm. The rest, as they say, is history.
1: Yeah, following a successful invasion, for which Dragonstone proved to be a strategic base, Aegon and his sister-wives, fifth-generation descendants of Danes, began a dynasty that would dominate Westeros for 300 years. As East met West, the continent now included Valyrians, Andals, and Rhoynar, all hailing from Essos, and all brought their legends with them across the Narrow Sea. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed this installment of our extended look at the Legends of Ice and Fire. And now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks as always to George R.R. Martin for all of his wonderful world-building and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. We also want to take a moment to thank those of you who helped the podcast by donating via PayPal or helping to spread the word. Your support is important to us. And today we'll end with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Consider being a patron of the podcast and you could be hearing your name here too. Thanks to Patrick Silver Eagle, Pepper Nix, Dean, Josh, Alexis, Amber, Chris K, Marge of the Mage, Jessica, Joe, Jude... Kurt, Rusted Revolver, John H., Lady of the Frostbanks, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valerian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melissa. Yorland, J.M., The Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Eliana Targaryen, Casey, Boss, Aerodot, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words are Wind, Deeds are Stone, Joy, Whitney, Marcel, Matthew, Aaron, Sasha, Aileen, the Podcast Lawyer, and Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Ryan, Stephen, Matthew, Derrick, Sir Kyle Dane, wielder of Sundown, X of the Afternoon, Matthew, Dutch, defender of the berm, the Red Woman, Anne, Alison, Christina, Clay, Yo and Longbeard, the well read, wine gobbler from Ultima Thule. Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Duke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Rachel, Joseph, Kevin, Adam, Danielle, Dennis, The Orange Man, Emma, Jeffrey, Judson, Roger, Jordana, Lauren, Cat of the First Men, Marjorie, Crimson Kate, Cajun Khaleesi, Emily of the Irie, Terry, Jake, Melissa, Maria... Mark Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, and Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, Sworn Smith, the House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. As always... Let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer us to use, or if we've left anything out. Visit RadioEsteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, or comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. To those of you that I had the wonderful chance of meeting at Ice and Fire Con last month, thanks so much for stopping by, and Thank you for joining us here today. We'll see you soon with another episode. Bye for now. Hold
0: up.